Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright. And finally, the Game of Thrones crossover minute. (laughs) Today, we are talking about Minute 77, which begins with Howard Rising post-explosion and ends with a substitute for the women of America grabbing Steve by the tie. (laughs) Back on the show today, it's Jason Dittmer, author of Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero. Welcome back, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So we're wrapping up the explosion. Uh, this is that moment where, I mean, really, it's very little here. Uh, in the last minute, we saw uh, Howard's engineer uh, getting uh, up off of the floor. And here we see Howard slowly picking himself up and telling his engineer to write that down. I feel like the quippy lines, <laughs> like is, I don't know, how, how do all these quippy lines play? I mean, does it feel like they're needed in order for it to feel like, you know, kind of this comic book genre of film to have stuff like that? Or how does that play? It's not the funniest, is it? I mean, it's <laughs> it's not like, uh, you know, um, some some of the really more uh, memorable uh, lines. And I wouldn't say this is one of the funniest movies either. Marvel has a kind of, you know, style of humor. It changes a little bit from movie to movie. But, um, you know, certainly in the kind of phase one movies, uh, I think they developed, uh, you know, maybe off of the back of Iron Man, a kind of uh, a style of humor, which just doesn't fit very well with Captain America movies. And I think they get funnier as they go on um, and as the character gets kind of bedded in a bit and you can play with a, a, with with them a bit more. But, uh, you know, this seems to me like, uh, you know, a, a bit of a throwaway. Um, you have to end the scene somehow. Uh, you know, I don't think the scene is about the joke. I think the scene is about showing the the technological progress that's going in the investigation. Um, but you know, you can't just have an explosion and and cut. You know, so <laughs> I think it's, right, it's more right, of a right. cap on the scene than than a, a really good joke. Jason, I think you're really underplaying the value of adding the joke to the post explosion crazy hair because that really, <laughs> I think that lands. The whole thing. And you have to have it. It's all of a piece. It's all of a piece. I don't know. I I have not looked at uh, Andy. I I regret to inform you. I have not done my homework on this, but I feel like post explosion crazy hair is a trope that we should we should further investigate (laughs) because it just reminded me watching the minute this time that that this is something that we've seen many times and. I can't I sort of can't believe they leaned in on it in this movie. It feels like maybe a touch low hanging fruit, but also far from the course. The whole explosion itself feels very tropey, right? The whole idea yeah. of having this um this thing that gets blown up that um I mean we've seen the damage that it does in the field like when they're blasting the the Tesseract powered guns they're blowing whole corners of buildings up and i mean it shatters the entire thing and you know it's howard stark i would think that there's likely a sense of you know the glass being fairly protective uh, from whatever is inside but still it doesn't feel as big an, an explosion and obviously it's not going to hurt any heroes because that's the that's how these sorts of things work so it is a very the whole thing plays very tropey it'll throw them both back it'll muss up their hair it'll it'll get dirt on their face but in no way are they actually hurt and so it does play in a very tropey way i think in the spirit of the marvel minute maybe 
you know, I should I should point out the anachronism because the 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 explosion hair that you guys are referencing is completely incompatible with the quality of pomade that was available for <laughs> men of the era. I mean, pomade back then uh, or pomade. I'm not sure how uh, how how uh, where, how it said where you are. Um, <laughs> is a uh, um you know it's quite thick back then it doesn't have the nuanced grades that we have today with the mat and the, the clays and uh the gels uh in which you can get all kinds of different more flexible styles pomade back then was was serious stuff and i don't think this blast would have would have done that to his hair but uh, that's the hill i'm gonna die on <laughs> <laughs> well there is and i i haven't uh found the actual explosion hair trope but in tvtropes.org we do have the ash face uh the ash face uh, trope where he doesn't have a lot of there is some stuff on stark's face he's but must it doesn't yeah. he's must he's more must but that is a significant trope uh, you know charted back to the golden age of animation i mean the the earliest of early cartoons uh really uh, deal with the the zaniness of post explosions to show this is a horrible horrible thing and you don't know how horrible until you see must hair must face must close well and that plays into for really for him and zola there is this level of kind of the mad scientist angle where i mean we see it in movies all the time where these crazy scientists do crazy experiments they never get hurt but they do get must and that's kind of the gag with kind of mad scientists in in films and yeah, stuff doc right? brown back to the future i mean we're, yeah, we same thing. just ended up talking about that so yeah it's interesting what i think is also funny is in the scene as howard is slowly kind of pulling himself up there also was at least a third person in the room who was working at a desk behind them and didn't seem to react at all to the explosion. And it only seems to react when they notice, oh, Howard's on the floor. I should run over there and help him up. It's a very strange reaction to have them, like, literally just standing there <laughs> initially. Like, they, like, the explosion, like, they're not cowering or anything. They're just working at their desk. Very, very odd. Kind of implies it happens all the time, you know? <laughs> well, to that end, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that, I think, would have been funnier and maybe leaning into more of the British wit to have them not come help Howard at all. Just keep working, right? That's like, right, that's, right, right. that's funny. Mm -hmm. That's yep. funny. Well, we certainly are going to talk about all of this and how it plays in the coming minutes. And I look forward to delving into that as we continue in Stark's lab. But for the moment, let's step out of the lab and go out just into the main room of the headquarters, uh, kind of off in a back corner where uh, Steve shows up and he asks Private Lorraine uh, where Howard is. He's looking for Mr. Stark and uh, she tells him he's in with Colonel Phillips. That alone right there says this is later because Colonel Phillips clearly wasn't in the room. Interestingly, in the script, it was immediately or shortly after because her line in the script was, I think he's out looking for a broom. So um, so I guess they changed it just to imply this isn't immediately afterward. Um, but this is our scene with uh, Private Lorraine. As you brought up, Pete, it is a little Game of Thrones crossover. Um, what do we think of of this scene and how it plays? I love Natalie Dormer a lot. Like, just, I think she's amazing. <laughs> Did you love her here in in uh, 
you know, when the film came out or was it because of Game of Thrones? Like, it was because of Game of Thrones, but I have seen a lot of Natalie Dormer stuff. And I talked about this actually fairly recently. If you haven't seen the Matt Smith, Natalie Dormer, Stanley Tucci vehicle, Patient Zero, in which they teach zombies to communicate with one another, uh, it is amazing. And if you like Game of Thrones, you will love that not only is Matt Smith, House of the Dragon, in it, Natalie Dormer's in it, Tucci's not a Game of Thrones guy, but John Bradley is in it. Who is also in Game of Thrones with Natalie Dormer? I, I just I'm I'm a big fan of Natalie Dormer. I've discovered her on uh, Game of Thrones, but I have I've been following Natalie Dormer for some time. M- maybe it was um, no, it would have been. I think it actually it would because when did she start with? When did Game of Thrones start? I'm trying to figure out if I did we know her before. Don't go looking at her IMDb because we're going to do the IMDb game. Real quick. Oh, I was we'll, just looking at Game of Thrones. I'll stop. I'll stop. Okay, yeah. I'll stop. We're, we're going to do IMDb for her just to get it out of the way because you're itching, I can tell. To, I'm itching. To dig into her uh, filmography. Um, do either of you have a sense of what IMDb would say are her four known fours? The one, the one I'm thinking of, but I'm drawing a blank on the name. She was in um, a show about the Tudors, I think, but I can't think of the, it's I mean, called the, Tudor the Tudors. Dynasty. Oh, it is there called you go. the Tudors. Yeah, you nailed it. I meant to nailed say that with one. authority. <laughs> yeah. uh, she was in the Tudors. <laughs> and um, I believe playing Anne Boleyn, as That's I recall. Exactly That's exactly right. She was Anne Boleyn. She's great. She's just great. Uh, she was also, I would definitely say, um, Game of Thrones has got to be in there. And and yeah. I, my hunch is that um, she's more small screen than big screen because she hasn't done a lot. But the one I would say she was in uh, Hunger Games. Uh, she was in the Hunger Games uh, the last of the Hunger Games movies. So I'll say Hunger Games, Mockingjay 1, and uh, what else? What else has she done that's big enough? Was Patient Zero in there? I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that was a movie. I mean, it's, if she's... It's big. <laughs> it's, it's big. Pete's, Pete's favorite. I, I have a feeling you might be on an island with Patient Zero, Pete. I, I, we're, this, this show is not endorsing patient zero it is just pete endorsing it is on behalf pete of has pete an un, and andy un, uh, his love for zombie films let's just say <laughs> it does pete, not always equate zero. to quality, <laughs> quality yeah yeah uh and maybe oh you know what else you know what else um i i have not watched but i hear that is that is i think her most current thing is uh, wasn't she? She's in the Penny Dreadful spinoff, which I haven't watched because I haven't watched the other Penny Dreadful, the original Penny Dreadful. So I don't know what it's called, but I think it's. I think she has a pretty big part of it. Her known for is our Game of Thrones, uh, the Tudors, the Hunger Games. It's actually Mockingjay Part Two, and Penny Dreadful, City of Angels. City of Angels. There you wow. go. Wow. <laughs> so that's what that's what Natalie's up to. Uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, she's done a lot more TV than she has film projects. And uh, like a lot of the film, I mean, she's been in bigger films like she was in um, Rush and The Counselor and W.E., The Professor and The Madman. And so she certainly is in films, but it seems like the TV work is where she is getting more recognized. The uh, Professor and The Madman was was quite good and i it's one of those that i do i don't know that it's a guilty pleasure because it's a solid movie uh but i don't like that i like it because it's just (laughs) it comes with some baggage some performative baggage but uh it's quite good so all right so the scene as uh, as private lorraine she uh is completely ignoring him now we had seen her once before 
clearly seemed to be like a private who was basically set up to be Colonel Phillips' assistant. That's She had been following him around in a previous scene down here in the headquarters, and now she's, I don't know, it seems like there's they're having this conversation, and it seems like she's here waiting because she was here with Colonel Phillips, who now went in to meet with Mr. Stark, and now she's just waiting for uh, Colonel Phillips to come out. That's kind of how it's set up, um, completely ignoring him until she looks up and I, I don't know if it's that she recognizes that it's Steve Rogers or just a, a hunk of man. And um, I mean, she obviously does recognize him, but still like there's that draw to him immediately. And she basically says, uh, hey, you're welcome to wait and changes her tune. Uh, and this really becomes this moment between a woman who is attracted to Steve, who, um, you know, is interested in perhaps something more. And Steve, who is, again, reverting to puny Steve brain here and completely flustered with the idea of, of how to actually talk to a woman or, or deal with somebody who is attractive. Um, does it does this scene play for the two of you? Does do you feel like this um, this makes sense in context of of where we've seen Steve and, and um, you know, just kind of a, a sense of uh, an element of story with Steve that we needed for the film. I mean, I think maybe there is a connection to patient zero here in that if Natalie Dormer there was <laughs> teaching zombies how to communicate, you know, here she's teaching a, a kind of uh, zombie sexual being how to how, how to how to be uh, involved in a tryst. You know, I mean, this is it, she's I don't want to say she's forcing herself on him, but um you know, there there isn't the kind of awkward flirtation that we've seen with um, Agent Carter. You know, there's a you know he's he's obviously kind of embarrassed and awkward, but he's not running away. And um, you know, under the kind of contrived dialogue of, of doing it for all the women of America, um, you know, <laughs> she she kind of forces him across a threshold. You know, yeah. Um, so it seems to me. It, it's both an important scene in terms of how it sets up um, some tension with Agent Carter, but it also um, seems kind of crucial in terms of pulling him out of that kind of, you know, adolescent awkwardness into the possibility of being a kind of sexual being. Uh, I would first like to say, Professor Dittmer, you're welcome back anytime to continue to reinforce our need to watch Patient Zero collectively. <laughs> I, uh, I never thought I, that this totally would be agree. an episode. Yeah that really is doing its job to plug the hell out of patient zero. Like what, what of all the things um, that I thought I, would come from this episode. <laughs> I think it's actually, it, it's interesting because it's super tropey. And my problem is that I, uh, I adore Chris Evans and Natalie Dormer, and they are people that I am a genuine fan of. And this movie reduces them to such, uh, such a basic portrayal of, um, of just sort of lust. And, um, and, and so her coming on to him, I'm not sure that I need it. I'm not sure that I need I mean, to your point, like representing the women of America, it feels like it's painted in such broad strokes. This character is painted in such broad strokes that I'm actually not sure it plays. And in retrospect now, immediate retrospect after post-explosion crazy hair, it might be just way too much. Like, I, I just I don't need the whole sequence. And I'm curious why it's still here. Like, what role does does Natalie Dormer's character, right, Private Lorraine, play in the movie that requires her to be set up this way? 
uh, just to show that people are lusting after the new Captain America? Is is that why the movie exists? Don't we have that everywhere else in the movie? Well, I, it seems to me the point is to set up the conflict with Agent Carter, right? Because, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, but, you know, um, she, with her walking in on them. And, you know, every rom-com, you know, involves the couple getting together and then getting apart and then, you know, getting back together again. Uh, and in some ways, this movie follows that exact, with regards to Agent Carter and and Captain America, it follows that same trope, right? They get together, they're interested, meet cute, yeah, <laughs> right. maybe in World War II, and then, oh no, misunderstanding, people storm off, and then, you know, the, the plot brings them back yeah. together again. So yeah. you, you need it to do that, even if it doesn't play well. I agree, it's an awkward thing. And the idea yeah. of like kissing him on behalf of all the wives of America is equally kind of weird. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like all the wives of America want to be making out with him. I'm like, that's you right. know, adultery, well, but well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, well, they're not all married, as Steve said. I don't think they're <laughs> right. all married. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and we'll talk more about kind of the kiss and everything tomorrow with, with Peggy. But yeah, I think there is this element here of that trope. I mean, this isn't, you know, there are elements of this film that end up being very tropey. And the idea of a romantic couple needing a conflict between them just so it can further cement their actual affection for each other uh, becomes so much of the actual trope. Like, it just isn't something that plays as well, apparently, if you just have them like each other and they just connect and that's it. You know, you need to build some conflict into it. And this is that point of conflict. And to that end, it feels it feels very kind of written and tropey. And, you know, it I, yeah, it is what it is. It's just one of these things that that just ends up being here. And I just I roll my eyes at it when it pops up. Yeah, I think that's the question, too, Andy, is is there enough movie that we're actually here to watch that we need the meet cute couple like trio conflict? Uh, and I don't in this movie. Like, that's not why I'm here for this movie. And I, I feel like it's it's shoehorned in here specifically for that conflict. And it, it doesn't play as well for me. It's just too broad. When we have a war to fight and a hero to origin story. Um, like, let's let's get to it. And I I already I mean, you know, my roller coaster about this relationship between uh, Captain Car Carter and, and Captain America is now, you know, I don't know how many 77 episodes Legion like they're fine. They're fine together. I don't need the conflict. I don't need the as much as I like Natalie Dormer. You know, at the risk of being contrarian um, <laughs> for, the, for the purposes of, right. uh, of, of dragging out the conversation. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if you think about in the at the risk of speaking beyond our minute uh, remit here. But if you think about the entire Avengers cycle, right, with, um, you know, you could read the whole thing, the many movie arc of, of, of Captain America. Right. His kind of central tragedy is that he hasn't gotten to have the kind of domestic life that he desires, right? Uh, he's always been doing his duty and so on. And so, you know, in the movie, we have this arc of, you know, love interest d deferred because of this conflict. And then in the end, they can never actually be together because of the thing, um, you know, the iceberg and so on. But in the, oh, in the whole arc, right? His, his kind of central tragedy is he doesn't get to have this stuff. And so in the end, he does get to go back and live that life, right? Which we, it all happens off camera. But so you could think of this, I agree, slightly badly written, uh, awkward scene with Natalie Dormer as kind of a microcosm of his whole 
whole central character arc, right? Which is that it's about the, the thing that gets in the way of him having his life. In this case, it's, it's you know, this um, Agent Carter walking in on him and, and for the middle chunk of the movie, he's at odds with her. And in the whole arc of the Avengers, right, it's, it's his disappearing in the iceberg that keeps him from being with her. And then they are reunited in the end. So maybe just a small attempt to rescue an admittedly quite tepid scene. Well, and, and to that end, I mean, I think there is something perhaps interesting that how they're designing this where there's there perpetually is a conflict, um, something between Steve and Peggy throughout really kind of their entire life until he's able to return. But I mean, you could almost say that the scene, the previous scene that we had with Bucky was kind of the same, like maybe if Bucky wasn't there, but it was just Steve sitting in that room by himself while everyone else was drinking, like maybe the two of them would have ended up dancing. And that would have been that point where things shifted for them. But Bucky was there and he was the one who was kind of like leading the conversation and Steve didn't say anything, maybe because he was nervous or, you know, he was he was viewing the relationship where Bucky's the guy who talks and I'm just the guy who sits here. And so he didn't. And so she left. And now you were going to get that reverse where, you know, somebody else is here. And so Peggy is the one who leaves. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess perhaps that is what they're doing is they're just finding way after way to kind of like keep interrupting the start of their relationship. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I, the defense rests. I, I feel like it. Uh, <laughs> I, we could keep making that case uh, all day. I, I just, and as much as I like Natalie Dormer, it's, it's too broad for my taste. And, and uh, yeah. so, yeah. I mean, it's bad. I'm not saying it's a good <laughs> scene, <laughs> but I, in terms of its existence, I can yeah. see why it exists. Right, right, right. Uh, the only other note I had with this scene is she's reading the Stars and Stripes, which is the uh, newspaper for the American military. It has been around since uh, 1861, so it has been around for quite some time. They've had various editions published around the world, depending on which theaters um, in in global conflict the military is operating in. But uh, yeah, so it is uh, something that is still uh, publishing to this day. And, um, of course, the uh, the cover that we have here says 400 prisoners liberated miracle trek across enemy lines. And, you know, it did leave me with a question. I'm like, I know we don't really know how many prisoners were in the Hydra factory. Obviously, he, rec- re- you know, he rescues around 400. All we really had known was that there were 200 from the 107th who were sent in and less than 50 returned. So I guess it just means that there were a bunch of other troops there as well. Unless we take this as a form of media exaggeration, which I don't think we're meant to be reading the scene that way. I mean, far be it from uh, the U.S. Army's newspaper in wartime publishing stories that inflate wartime actions. Yeah, <laughs> Shocked, I, mean, I, I would you. never suggest such a thing. Shocked. Never. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, um, let's wrap this minute up. We're going to finish the moment between Steve and Private Lorraine tomorrow in minute 78. So, uh, so Jason, remind everybody again about your book and where they can pick it up, follow you online, all that good stuff. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm the author of a book called Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero, available in no fine bookstores, but on Amazon.com. And um, if you're interested in tweets about British politics and cats and uh, things like that, you can find me at Real J. Dittmer on Twitter. Fantastic. I got to ask you a question. 
Why aren't you talking about popular culture, geopolitics, and identity, human geography in the 21st century issues and applications? Because that has oh. actual oh. Captain America on the cover with Donald Trump's head. And I have to tell you, I am provoked, <laughs> sir. Oh, well, I'm I, curious. Uh, yeah, no. So that's a, a textbook I wrote, um, and it's in two editions. So the first edition had uh, Obama as Superman in a kind of graffiti uh, it was a, a real piece of graffiti art that was done when Obama was elected. And then when Trump was elected and I saw someone had done the Captain America with his head on it, I thought, you know, dagnabbit. Now I got to write a whole nother book. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you feel free to buy five to 10 copies of that as well. But it is a textbook. So get ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's 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 uh, it I'd like to think it's a page turner, but that's because everyone's required to, to yeah. turn the pages. <laughs> <Required> to <laughs> <turn> the pages. <laughs> All right. Well, we are wrapping up Minute 77. We'll be back tomorrow to talk Minute 78 and see what happens here in this scene between the two. So, Pete, thank you as always. Please join my mini show, Patient Zero, minute by minute. (laughs) Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.